Almighty and everlasting God, in your tender love for us, you sent your Son, our Saviour Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, giving us the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering and come to share in his resurrection through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. And Lord, may your spirit right now illuminate this word we've just heard, giving us ears to hear, and all those with grateful hearts said, Amen. 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 Uh, well, we have arrived this week in a, a major pivotal moment in Mark's gospel. Uh, pivot has been one of those words that kind of became a headline during COVID. Uh, there's constant pivoting of changing of plans and kind of going one way and needing to go another way. And pivot is kind of the idea of being a hinge or a turning point of sorts. And Mark chapter 8 is a hinge or turning point of sorts in the narrative of Mark's gospel. It's roughly halfway of the 16 chapters. Mark 8 is kind of smack bang in the middle. And if you were to read the first half of Mark's biography about Jesus, what will you notice? Well, we've seen these things uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, we've noticed the remarkable things that Jesus is doing. Uh, the healing of the sick, uh, the wisdom in his teaching, uh, astonishment through his miracles and the walking on water. And those who witness these events continually ask the question. It's the question that is the name of our series from Mark chapter 1 to 8. And it is, who is this man? There's like this astonishment. There's this amazement. Who is this guy? And so chapter 8 is the turning point. We find out who this guy is. We find out who this man, Jesus, really is. Now what happens in this chapter is uh, this pivotal moment. We get clarity on who he is. And then two other questions become dominant questions for the rest of of Mark's narrative as Mark 8 continues through to Mark 16. And so the three questions, uh, question one, who is Jesus? That's kind of really what chapters one to eight are all about. We get the answer and then chapters eight to 16 answer two further questions. One, why did Jesus come? And two, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Uh, and so in the second half of Mark's gospel, when we get to that section, uh, we'll unpack those questions in greater detail. But here's the thing that Jesus even does for us and Mark points out for us beautifully in Mark chapter 8. All three of those questions are answered in brief. Uh, who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? Now, the way we answer those questions and what we discern scripture to be saying about those questions is critical. Uh, it's critical that we respond appropriately to Jesus. Uh, English writer H.G. Wells had this to say about the significance of Jesus. I'm a historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Christ is the most unique person of history. No man can write a history of the human race without giving first and foremost place to the penniless teacher of Nazareth. Big words, important words from someone who doesn't even call themselves a believer. 
And yet here's the thing, it matters that we have an answer to the question, who is Jesus? And if, because if Jesus is as significant as Christians make him out to be, and the Bible seems to suggest he is, it will matter then what we do with him. It will matter what we believe about him. It will matter how we respond to him. And so for every single one of us this afternoon, that question that we've been asking for the last eight weeks in a row, who is Jesus? That question that those in the story have been asking as they've seen the story unfold, uh, it's, it's important for us to dig into this question. It's important for those of us here who already profess to be followers of Jesus, but it's likewise an important question for those of us who are actually investigating Jesus and asking questions about who he is and maybe what impact should he have upon our lives. And so question one, uh, in summary of everything we've seen in Mark chapter one is who is Jesus? Answer, we're going to call him the man. We're going to say more about Jesus as the man. Uh, But who is Jesus? In the midst of lots of people trying to work out his identity, Jesus actually asks his followers what conclusions people have come up with. Remember, people have been astonished and people have been amazed and everyone is asking these questions. And so Jesus conducts a snap poll. Uh, And look at uh, some of the answers they came up with. If you've got a Bible, keep it out and keep it open. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Now, John the Baptist, Elijah, and one of the prophets, they're important answers. Because each of those people are significant religious figures in the Bible. And so, at least by this point in the story, people, people are concluding, yeah, Jesus is significant. But then Jesus is not just interested in the word on the street. Jesus pushes the question further by redirecting it to his close friends, his disciples. Verse 29, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, heads up, Jesus' warning to his followers to keep his identity to themselves would suggest that Peter was right. Right? Jesus is the Christ. Now, remember, we are privileged readers. uh, And if you've been tracking with us in this series since Mark chapter 1, we already know that Jesus is the Christ. Um, From Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the opening sentence actually declares that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. But this is a really big moment as Jesus in the narrative claims it for himself. And this in many senses is one of the most significant claims that Jesus can make about himself. Remember the word Christ uh, is not just, you know, Jesus' last name. Congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. Christ. You've got a, a baby Christ. You know, it, it's, it's not his last name. It's, it's a title. In the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, Christ, uh, or in Hebrew, Messiah, was a title given to the king anointed by God. Now, the Jewish expectation was that God would one day send the Christ. There'd been many anointed ones. But there was the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would be the king of kings and rule the world uniquely, correctly, with righteousness, with justice. And so Jesus is claiming to be that king. This claim is significant for the first century, but but it's actually significant for all people throughout all time in all places, including Wavell Heights. 
You know, if we were to conduct a survey today asking people who they think Jesus is, there would be many and various responses. But ultimately, listen carefully, what matters is that we recognise Jesus to be who Jesus claims to be. Who is this man? He's the King. He's the Christ, the King of Kings. And if that's, the mo- if, if, that's, if, if that's the case, it's worth giving your attention to this king. This ought to, and it did, cause those whose ears heard these words to, to listen up. And likewise, if we understand something of the promises made about this king, this Christ, that would one day come, that Jesus is that king, is a big deal. Which leads naturally to the second question. If question one is, who is Jesus? Well, the second question is, well, why did Jesus come? The mission is the heading for number two, for those taking notes. Uh, number two, the mission. Number one was the man. Number two is the mission. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? What's his purpose in coming? What's his mission in being here? Now, in Mark's biographical account of the life of Jesus, we see that after Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ... Jesus immediately gets straight to the heart of his mission. Pick it up with me in verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, Son of Man is Jesus' way of referring to himself using some other Old Testament language, that the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. Straight away, he's the Christ. Don't tell anyone about this yet, he says. And this is what it will mean for me to be the Christ. Why did Jesus come? He came to suffer. He came to be rejected. He came to be killed. He also came to be raised from the dead. Now, what's Peter thinking? What are the other disciples thinking at this point? Well, we don't have to guess because look at verse 32. It says, and Jesus said this plainly. And Peter took Jesus, the Christ, the King of Kings, aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) But turning and seeing his disciples counter-rebuke, he rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter is shocked. Jesus wasn't playing the role of the Christ like he was expecting. And so Jesus quickly puts him into his place. You see, suffering, death, and resurrection, that is why the Christ came. You know, Jesus makes sure we get this, and Mark records this on repeat in what are called the Passion Predictions. We have in chapter 8 this prediction that he will suffer, die, and rise again. We then have it in chapter 9. We then have it again in chapter 10. Similar things are said in different situations. Jesus knows that for him to be the Christ, for him to be the King of Kings, It would mean going to the cross. You see, it's no accident that Jesus suffered in the way that he did. Jesus wasn't surprised on the the, the night before Good Friday of kind of, oh, what's, what's going on? I didn't expect this. Jesus wasn't surprised when the nails were pierced through his hands. Jesus wasn't even surprised when his tomb was empty, when he rose from the dead three days later. This, This is no accident. Jesus came, the Christ came on this mission. That's a pretty drastic mission, isn't it? Why did Jesus make death central to his mission? More central than all the other things and all the other miracles that he has been performing. 
Well, why is it such a big deal? And why was death necessary from the Christ, from the King? Because of sin. Sin is a politically incorrect term. We'd rather speak about mistakes, you know, oopsies, rather than sin. Yet if, if, if we are to be honest, we know that there are many ways that we fail to live up to our own standards, let alone God's. Each of us have failed to love God wholeheartedly. We, we had that reading from Zach earlier on in the service. And we've, we've, we've failed to care for our neighbour sufficiently. We haven't loved God. We haven't loved our neighbour. And if you're with us last week, we saw in chapter 7 that Jesus' assessment is that we all actually have a heart problem. Because each of us are made unclean, not by the things that go in, but by the things that come out of our hearts. You see, the bad news is that the Bible says that all people deserve judgment from God because of our sin and rebellion against him. And yet the good news, the best news, the most incredible news, the gospel news is that Jesus' mission was to deal with sin on our behalf. You see, in Jesus, as we've met him in Mark's gospel, we meet one who lived a life without sin. And so when he suffers and when he dies on the cross, he suffers and dies, not a death that he deserves, but he suffers and dies in our place. He's lived the life we failed to live. He's then died the death that we deserve for our sin. He takes our sin. He takes our shame. He takes our guilt. He takes our judgment. He takes our condemnation all upon himself. But more than that, three days later, he rises again. I think the resurrection, and we'll talk more about this next weekend, um, means his death really did work. And he guarantees eternal life. That like his tomb is empty, our tombs will be empty for those who are trusting in him. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good news that Jesus is the Christ? Amen? And, And isn't it good news that the Christ came to suffer die and to rise again amen it's the most incredible news ever it's the best news you could ever hear so three questions uh well firstly uh, who is jesus well he is the, the the man he is the king he is the christ what is his mission uh why did jesus come he came to suffer to die and to rise again the third and final question is regarding number three the movement this is the question well what does it mean to follow jesus what does it mean to join his movement Um, In 2016, uh, the Australian census indicated that 56% of Queenslanders indicated that they are Christian. Uh, In the 2021 Australian census, what percentage do you think now in Queensland indicate they're Christian? Higher or lower? Lower. Lower. Give us a number. Oh, so close. 46. 46. So it's gone from 56 five years ago to... Uh, 46, the number is in decline, certainly, but here's the thing, and I don't know if this is your vibe as you interact with people in your workplace, in your neighbourhood, others in the community, but as I look around Brisbane, even 46% seems a lot higher than it feels of people who are actually on Team Jesus, right? And and so what it does is it raises the question of, well, what does it actually mean to be part of the Christian movement? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Is it as simple as ticking the Christian box every five years on the census? Well, Jesus says that members of his movement, Christians, need to make three massive commitments. In response to who he is, in response to why he came, what does it mean to follow him? Three massive commitments. Have a look at it with me in chapter 8, verse 34. 
and calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them. So to those already following and the crowds, those who are prospecting and thinking, are we going to follow him too? If anyone, Jesus says, would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Notice, if anyone. This is a non-negotiable from the, from the King of Kings himself. The Christ is speaking. And he is about to explain what does it mean to be one of his followers, to be on his team, to be part of his movement. Do you see the three things there in verse 34? The, the first thing Jesus says is to deny yourself. That's a big call straight away, isn't it? Our world, the advertising industry, our upbringing... Our hearts each teach us that self is at the center. Jesus says, deny yourself. You see, a Christian says no to an individualistic uh, world that panders constantly to self. And so this attitude needs to be adapted uh, to all areas of life, including sexual ethics, including money, including time, including family, including work, including recreation. Deny yourself. You are not at the centre of the universe. Second, what does Jesus say there in verse 34? He says, let him deny... Sorry, I said that one. Uh, Take up his cross. Jesus says that disciples are those who need to take up their cross. Now, that, that kind of feels a little bit obscure and a little bit ambiguous. What does he even mean by that? Uh, Maybe if you've been around Jesus and Christianity for a while, you kind of have a bit of crucifixion cross type of uh, language in your vernacular. But crucifixion isn't part of our modern world. The the cross is more or less a religious symbol that's on church buildings, that's on church logos, often badly, uh, that's perhaps part of jewellery, tattoos. And yet in Jesus' world, everyone knew the implications of what does it even mean to take up your cross? The person who carried a cross was someone under the sentence of death and literally on their way to the place of execution. A dead man walking. They no longer had a life to call their own. That's big. It's kind of taking denying yourself, the first thing Jesus says, to a whole other level and take up your cross. To be part of Jesus' movement... It'll be noticeable. It'll be inconvenient. It'll be costly. And it will be painful. And that's the normal pattern since Jesus spoke these words 2,000 years ago. And even right now, uh, there are one in seven Christians around the world. Some 360 million Christians are under very high to extreme levels of persecution simply because they are Christian. They identify with the crucified one and pain is a result of following Jesus. Uh, Most of you would know I work with an organisation called Open Doors who serve and strengthen persecuted Christians around the world. Uh, The the second half of last year had the opportunity to go to Egypt, um, which was an incredible time of uh, hearing the stories of how God has strengthened Christians throughout the ages, including today. And the way that God is continuing to uphold our Christian brothers and sisters uh, who suffer significantly. We even spent some time praying for Egypt earlier on tonight. Uh, One of the places we went early in our trip was uh, Old Islamic Cairo, uh, which is a part of Cairo with a whole bunch of incredibly beautiful old buildings. And 
Uh, the, the, the highlight of this precinct uh, and the bazaars that we visited was spending a time in this beautiful 11th century mosque called Al-Hakim Mosque. Uh, and while we were seated in the inner courtyard of the mosque, uh, Bishoy, our, um, our tour guide, he quietly, very carefully, we're in a mosque, remember, he quietly told us the story of Al-Hakim and how he became the caliph, the, the Islamic ruler uh, back in the 11th century. Uh, and uh, Al-Hakim was a brutal leader known by some as the mad caliph or the Nero of Islam. And Al-Hakim, as you learn his story, he was fixated on destroying Christianity. You know, to say that Christians were marginalized was an understatement during his reign. Christians that chose not to convert to Islam had three choices. Number one, be killed. Uh, number two, stay home. Or number three, only leave your homes if you are willing to wear a heavy iron cross around your neck. Do you know what the Christians did? They chose the cross. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus said, if anyone would come after him, they must carry their cross. These believers were literally called to carry a cross and left a mark, literally. The weight of the, the, the cross left a chain mark on the back of their necks. And they were ridiculed because they kind of had this permanent mark on the back of their necks. necks uh, and they were ridiculed with the name Blue Bones. But again, these brothers and sisters took the insult as an honour. And even to this day, Christians call themselves blue bones because they're those who have been marked out with a, the blue bones, the mark that's left because you've carried your cross and suffered disgrace for the sake of Jesus. Now, throughout uh, history, um, Egyptian Christians well beyond Al-Hakim's reign um, who refused to convert to Islam, they didn't all necessarily have to wear a big, heavy iron cross around their neck. Uh, and yet they had a cross tattooed on their wrist by the authorities uh, as they were also forced to pay an exorbitant tax. And yet here's the thing that the Christian community has done in Egypt. Rather than shrinking back from wearing this symbol, subsequent generations of Christians in Egypt have chosen to mark themselves with the cross, choosing uh, to get the tattoo of the Christian cross on their wrist to, to communicate that we are unashamed to belong to Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. You know, Bashoi, uh, our tour guide, had been really conscious of not projecting his voice too loudly the whole time we're in a mosque for obvious reasons. But as he drew things to a conclusion, he invited us to lean in further and listen carefully to his whisper. And he said these unforgettable words. He said, every stone around you has witnessed the killing of Christians. And yet here we are, talking about Jesus and the ongoing spread of Christianity while sitting in a mosque. Now at the end of, uh, the end of our trip, most of our team um, actually got an Egyptian cross on our wrist. Uh, there's mine, it's starting to smudge a little bit. Um, we had the option of going for the $7 Australian version uh, or the $14 for the one that's sharp. So we all went for the $14 option when it came to um, getting the Egyptian cross on our wrists. 
But it was an opportunity while there. I've known the story of the cross in Egypt for some time to, to kind of have a tangible marker and reminder of what it costs for so many of my brothers and sisters to follow after Jesus, the crucified one, to carry their cross. And at, at one level, I, I often don't think about this cross on my wrist. I see it and I, and I think about it a little bit, but there was a 90-minute period as we were leaving Egypt that I thought about it a lot. Uh, the whole time we were in Egypt, we had a, a security guard with a machine gun. Uh, we we kind of knew all the security protocols. There was lots of risks. Uh, but our flight was like 2 a.m. in the morning, leaving Cairo late at night. And so we didn't have our security guard. And we got dropped off on the other side of the airport and kind of had to make our way through like 10 lanes of traffic and kind of dragging our bags. And it was all a little bit disorienting. And then as we kind of walked into the foyer of the airport, there was a darkness that you could kind of feel in the space, not just the darkness of night, I'd even suggest a spiritual darkness in that place. And a, it felt like a tangible hostility and there was a long line. And so here we are, no security guard. And I no longer had the band-aid on my wrist. And I'm standing there, not freaking out, but man, I'm conscious. I'm in the one place on the planet where people know exactly what this cross is about. And in the 90 minutes, I'm thinking, I've heard stories about what border security officials can be like and almost start to paint this picture of here's this stupid white guy who thought he'd go on a spiritual pilgrimage to Egypt and get a cross on his wrist. Well, I'll give him a time to remember. And these things are starting to play through my head and I'm thinking, what might happen? And that was actually the most significant moment that I've had in having a cross on my wrist, being conscious that this could cost me in this place. Nothing happened. Um, but there was, a, there was an awareness that something could happen. And that's the reality for millions. There's some 17 million Christians in Egypt and the vast, vast, vast majority of them all wear a cross and all suffer consequences because they wear a cross. Now, I hope you're not hearing that my encouragement is off the back of sharing these stories, go out and get a cross tattoo. You're welcome to, uh, but don't tell, don't, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that you should do that. But... Are you conscious of what it looks like to walk the road of suffering? Are you conscious of what it looks like to carry your cross? To actually have following Jesus cost you something as you go after him, as you deny yourself, as you look different and even a little bit awkward in a world that works differently from those who belong to Jesus and his cross. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross. And then finally, he says, follow me. Followers of Jesus, get this, follow Jesus. That means you listen to him and you obey his teachings. You're to love Jesus, you're to live for Jesus, you're to be like Jesus. No matter what happens in life, those who belong to the Jesus movement must have their allegiance and identity found in Jesus. Do you see those challenging words? And we won't read the rest of the paragraph, but I'll just read verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You see, being part of Jesus' movement will cost you everything, but it's worth it. Jesus and the life he offers is of infinitely greater value than anything that this world has to offer. Hear that. You might be right now tempted to go after the things of the world. You might be tempted to go after the, the things that the world says are alluring. But listen to Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. Now, doing these things is not what makes us acceptable to God. 
It's only by trusting in Jesus' death and his resurrection that we can be acceptable before God. But as those who do trust in Jesus, this is how we now live. What is a Christian? It's much more than ticking a box on the census. Ultimately, is someone who trusts in Jesus and seeks to live with Jesus as number one. Is Jesus number one for you? If you're already a Christian, continue to send your life on him. Continue to follow after him. But look, if you're not yet a Christian, or even maybe this is actually a little bit confronting hearing some of these things, because maybe even as I've spoken and as I'm concluding right now, you're like, actually, if you were to look at my life over the last five years, maybe it doesn't look that different from those who simply tick the box on the census form to say they're a Christian. And so if you're not yet a Christian, or if you're even just a little bit unsure on whether you're a Christian or not, why not from today stop living for yourself and this world and put your trust in the King? The Christ, the one who died for you, the one who was raised again. Start living with Jesus as number one. Join the movement. Become a Christian. Look, if you're not yet a Christian, not yet a follower of Jesus, or you've got people in your world and life who you'd like to invite to become a Christian, uh, please reach out. I'd love to catch up for a coffee, love to catch up for a meal, love to talk further about what it looks like to take that first step in becoming a Christian. But for the majority of us here who I trust are trusting Jesus are Christians, let's continue in the Christian movement. (laughs) Let's keep going. Let's keep following him. Who is this man? Well, we know this man, Jesus Christ. We've been saved because of his mission. So let's continue to give ourselves to his movement as we point others to the man, teaching them of the mission and inviting them likewise to join the movement. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Jesus. Lord, would you give us eyes to see him? Would you give us eyes to believe him? Help us to know that he is who he says he is, that he really is the Christ. He's the King of Kings. He's the one who has come to live, to suffer, to die, and yet to be raised from the dead. Father, thank you that that everything Jesus said would happen, happened. Thank you that he really is the King of Kings. And Father, we want to thank you for the life that is ours now and the life that is ours for eternity through him who lived, died and rose again for us. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to follow after Jesus. As we look to our lives, would you help us to deny uh, the things in this life and the things in this world that keep coming in the way of following Jesus as number one? And would you help us as a new community to help each other to keep trusting Jesus And would you give us boldness to invite the rest of Brisbane to know him too, to join his movement and find eternal life through him and him alone. It's in his name that we all pray. Amen.